Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey toward Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. It is so good to see you today. I hope that um, you're enjoying our little jazz vibe as much as I am. I'm going to be doing a lot of turning today, so uh, try and keep up with me if you can. Uh, And if anybody wants to uh, join me for the rest of this season and really leaning into this moment, tie bars are welcomed. So... If you got a suit at home and you haven't worn it since your last wedding uh, or funeral, uh, then feel free to put it on in the next couple weeks. And uh, and let's show out a little bit. I think it'll be fun. Uh, This is your first time with us. Welcome to uh, Worship with Renovation Church. We're very glad that you would extend a little bit of your time to us, especially uh, as I get older. uh, I am realizing more and more that the greatest asset I have in the world is my time. And so for you to trust a little bit of your time to us is significant. And we don't take it lightly, and we appreciate it greatly. So thank you for spending a little bit of time with us. We always say a couple of things. Number one, this is not a perfect community for perfect people. And so if uh, you're looking for that, you're in the wrong place. If you're looking for uh, imperfect people uh, who may be dealing with one of various messes on any given week, you're in the right place because we know that we need Jesus. Uh, And so uh, here you can belong before you believe. We believe that. Uh, And in fact, if you are in a season of deconstruction or working out what you believe, uh, then this is a safe and great place for you to do that as well among people who love you. Uh, Today, as you well notice, we start a brand new series called Jazz Christmas. Uh, If you have your little uh, song book there or program, if you grew up in in a Kojic church, stay out your program. Um, That is not only going to provide you with the words to the songs that we're singing, but it also has the major points of my sermon, and I'd love for you to follow along if you wish. And then you should have gotten the little blue uh, insert when you came in as well, uh, because we don't have the screens for these next few weeks. We wanted to give you a way to be able to bring your first and best back to God, and so uh, the QR code is there on that insert. If you didn't get one, our host team would be glad to provide you one during that time if you slip up your hand. Uh, Before we jump in, A couple of things I want to say through this series. Let's be early and expectant. Let's uh, bring some folks with us and continue to create the culture that we want to have as a community. Uh, The second thing I want to remind you is is that on December 18th is Ugly Christmas Sweater Sunday. Uh, We're going to have two photo areas set up, I've been told. Uh, One is going to be a step and repeat. Thank you for teaching me that, Cam. Uh, uh, And a step and repeat is just a giant sign with words repeated over and over again. So I learned something new last week. And then the other will be a 360 photo booth. And so uh, if you want to come and take some fun family photos or take some photos with your friends or your roommates, you know, to remember them before you kick them out of your house, whatever you want to do, this will be a great time for you to come up uh, next week. Invite a friend. Invite somebody who uh, you know maybe they are, are, you know, not really entertaining the idea of Jesus or maybe they're far from God. and, And this will be a great opportunity for them to have a first introduction to church, something that's very very different. And the last thing I want to remind you of is uh, uh, we will not be here on Christmas Day. Christmas uh, falls on a Sunday this year. Uh, If you think that makes me less than spiritual, well, uh, I will read some of the Gospels to you. But uh, we will not be here on Christmas Day. Uh, We're actually going to have an awesome candlelight Christmas Eve gathering. 
uh, and uh, we'll be in this room December 24th. Yeah, there's going to be candles. Uh, December 24th, 6 p.m., uh, it'll be uh, nursery service for the little ones, but uh, the elementary kids will be in here with us for that celebration, and uh, we're excited about that, so be here for Christmas Eve. If you're here on Christmas Day, you'll be in the parking lot by yourself. All right, now, uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you open it up for me to, uh, to Matthew's record of Jesus' life and work. Uh, in chapter 25, we're just going to read a couple verses together. And, and as we prepare to do that, um, I want you to ponder a question with me. Matthew 25, if you're going there. And uh, you should be able to find a Bible app event as well if you want to just go to the Bible app. Uh, but I want you to ponder a question as you turn there. What is Christmas? What is Christmas actually? And it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately uh, as I prepare for the series and work through these beautiful songs to try and preach their truth uh, what is Christmas? And, and if you're good in church, you probably got an answer. You probably got the right answer. But I want you to preach. I want you to push past your church answer and really search your heart for what you believe Christmas is. Is it, is it presents? Is it family? Uh, is it eating so much that you have to make a New Year's resolution? Uh, is it time off? You know, what, what is Christmas for you? Is it, is it more time with your kids? More, is, it, is it uncomfortable meals with the uncle or the aunt you see one time a year? Like what? is Christmas to you? And, and what does Christmas actually mean? That's kind of the question that we're going to wrestle through as we consider this song. And considering I used to be a straight up Grinch, real talk, I was. Uh, I'm a convert. Uh, my wife, uh, Jesus saved me to him and then my wife saved me to Christmas. And so now uh, we are people who have lights and trees up before Thanksgiving. Uh, I am the people that I used to make fun of. So always remember that if you're throwing shade on somebody, one day that shade might be back on you. All right. So, yeah, that's us now. We got two trees. We would have three if we had more room. And not because of my wife, but because of me. All right. I'm full of the Christmas spirit now. Uh, but uh, that's not Christmas, is it? And in fact, the, the, the song we're going to explore today, written in 1849, uh, 10 years before the U.S. would face the consequence of enslaving human beings as they entered civil war, this song pleads with its listeners to really consider the true nature of Christmas. And that's why we're starting with this verse in Matthew chapter 25. So if you want to read with me, uh, we're just going to read a couple of verses uh, here in chapter 25. In fact, uh, it will be verses 44 and 45. Then they too will answer, Lord, uh, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And Jesus will answer them, truly, I tell you, <clears throat> whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus that your word would settle into our hearts and we would receive it. Uh, Lord God, that this would not be a spirit of heaviness, but a spirit of challenge and truth that will actually release us to be the people in the world that you called us to be. Uh, God, your church mobilized is the most powerful thing in the universe. And Lord God, we want to be a mobilized church. And so inspire us today to be that church. Yes, in Jesus' name, amen. The year was 1849, as I said, and, and anyone who was attuned to the times knew that the U.S. was on the brink of catastrophic consequences for having enslaved uh, human beings at that juncture for a couple of hundred years. And the, the prevailing winds of incremental change were upon them. They were blowing. Things were happening. Things were moving. And, and this is the moment in which we find ourselves. And, and with this war on the horizon, things would never 
never be the same again. And the loss of life would be more than anyone could have ever thought to try and measure. Enter Dr. Edmund Sears. He was a Unitarian pastor, uh, and he had been trained at Harvard Divinity School and, and at Union College. And, and as he sat trying to construct an uplifting Christmas sermon, he found himself stuck. He could not pull together the words. He, he, he found himself in a, in a place where, where the words just simply would not flow because in his mind, he thought to himself, how in the world can I inspire them when my soul is so heavy? He was uh, attuned as well to the season that he was in. He was troubled. He was troubled by the poverty that surrounded him. He was troubled by the egregious uh, sin of slavery. He was troubled at the general state of humanity in light of what God made humanity and shaped them to be. No uplifting message would come, if you go and read this story for yourselves, uh, no, no uplifting message would come as he desperately searched for words. And he stopped and he prayed. 39 years old, that God would meet him in that moment. And he was a unique man. You see, as a Unitarian minister, his denomination is renowned for not preaching the divinity of Christ, but he believed in the divinity of Christ. And because of the divinity of Christ, he believed that the people of God were called to be more than they were behaving. His burden for the hungry and the sick and the marginalized demanded that he reached out daily to those that Jesus called the least of these. And as he tried to write his message, well, that's where he found himself lost. He thumbed through his Bible, which is something that I have found myself doing in times where I just cannot really grasp the words for what I'm trying to capture. And he thumbed through his Bible, and he landed on the story that we read in part for our uh, call to worship. And he read, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep, and suddenly an angel appeared among them, and the radiance, the radiance of the glory of the Lord surrounded them, and they were terrified, and he was inspired by those words. After considering the miracle of that moment long ago, he picked up his pen, and he scribbled out a five-verse poem called, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, and then he went to his files, which is what they had before, you know, docs, and uh, he pulled out another poem that he had written several years before that, and, and that poem was entitled, Calm on the Listening Ear of Night Comes Heaven's Melodious Strains. Man, they were so much better at writing back then, right? Like, I write a poem, and it's called Night. You know, it's just like, like why are you so emo, Pastor? Um, he combined these two poems, and he conspired them to form the start and the end of his Christmas Eve sermon. Today, Sears' poems have been turned into a carol that is considered joyful and uplifting. We're going to sing it together at the end of our time. But, but when he first wrote it and when he delivered it, it would have been considered a challenge and a charge rather than the story of a miraculous birth in a land in a time long and far away. Yes, Pastor Sears desired that his congregation celebrate Christmas, but he longed equally for them to see the poor as valuable image bearers. And to address the nation's social issues, as well as consider what they could do as individuals to best reflect the spirit of Jesus in their everyday lives. You see, Sears 
wanted his congregation in the world to hear the cries of the low as he did. And certainly so do I. And so I submit to you today as we consider the words of this song that, that we cannot follow the way of Jesus until we work the works of Jesus in the world. It's not possible to say that we follow the way of Jesus if we don't work the works of Jesus. In fact, even though Martin Luther tried to rip it out of the Bible because of his own need for counseling, the book of James specifically says, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. It's okay for me to say a church father needed counseling, right? Because he did. He had a beer problem. He changed Romans, right? It, it does not say alone in the book of Romans. He added that because he was wrapped into Catholicism. And then he tried to get rid of the book of James. Like, that brother needed somebody to talk to. We cannot follow the way of Jesus until we follow the work of Jesus in the world. And as we unpack the rich depth of this song, I want you to be reminded that woven into the lyrical fabric of this beautiful, beautiful piece of music is a promise that a weary and hurting world needed to be rescued and that God stepped in to rescue it. And that if he did, in fact, do that, well, then we're part of that rescue plan. It came upon a midnight clear that Christ's love must be lived by his people. So let's hear his words fresh again. And this is what I'm going to do. It's a little different than last time. I'm, I'm actually going to walk through every stanza, and I'm going to make five observations. So one observation per stanza. It's in your uh, uh, pamphlet. <laughs> that was funny to me. It's in your songbook, and, uh, and you'll see it right there at the front, and you'll be able to follow along. And then, of course, the words of the song are in there as well. And, and we're going to make these observations, and I'm going to show you where they come from in the Word of God, and then we're going to move on. I think we're going to have a good day. So the first verse starts this way. It came upon the midnight clear, the glorious song of old. From angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold, peace on earth, goodwill to men from heaven's all-glorious king. The world in solemn stillness lay. To hear the angels sing. Our first observation is this, that Christmas is a promise of coming peace. Did you hear it? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Christmas is a promise of coming peace. Why is Christmas a promise of coming peace? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to bring the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6, if you want to read that for yourself. But this peace in our world, listen, it is not the absence of disturbance. We've got to get that definition of peace out of our mind. Peace is not an absence of disturbance. Peace is a centeredness in disturbance. That's what peace is. It is something more. In fact, Paul writes in Philippians 4, 7 that God gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding. How does he do that? Because Jesus is peace. Do you know the word peace? In Hebrew, it means shalom. And shalom means wholeness. Are you with me right now? And so peace, the peace that God is promising, is not a lack of chaos. It is a wholeness amid the chaos that cannot be shaken. That even in the midst of what feels like lack, we're whole because of Jesus. Peace is his character. Peace became a reality in Jesus' birth, and it was applied to us in his death and resurrection. And that is why Jesus is our peace. 
It is naked and ashamed. He hung on the cross. Why? To gain peace between God and men. To reconcile the Father in humanity. To grant peace to any person who puts their trust in him. To gift peace to everyone who's navigating the chaos of reality. And reality is chaos. Yes. Jesus' death and resurrection secured salvation to any who would believe. That is the gospel. And yes, Jesus' death and resurrection grants those who believe his righteousness and not their own. And yes, Jesus' death and resurrection gives us eternal life. But never forget that it is also a promise of nearness to him. And in nearness to him, we are far from any chaos that might crumble our lives. Because he's our peace. In fact... What Jesus gives is a peace that transcends rationality. That's what Paul is saying. It's a peace that people look at you and say, how are you so settled in the middle of this? How are you not rattled by what just happened? How are you going through what you're going through with a praise still on your lips? That's that peace. Listen, can I define it one more time? It is, it is a peace that lets us face the pain of the moment without succumbing to the panic. It is a peace, listen, it is a peace that accepts the circumstances as they are but are not controlled by the feelings that they produce. That's the peace that Jesus promises. And Paul says that this peace, listen, that it will do something powerful. Did you know? That's why you got to read your Bible. Oh, Lord, there it is. They're going to make fun of me for that later. Apparently, at least once a semester or once a sermon, I say, y'all ain't reading your Bible or you need to read your Bible. Or, this is why you should read your Bible. Or, Would you please read your Bible? <laughs> Hashtag, y'all ain't reading your Bible. So Paul says this peace will do something for you. Again, I need you to hear this. Stop thinking of peace as passive activity. Peace is an active posture. And Paul says that this peace will guard your hearts and minds. Did you know that? Now, where is the first place the enemy attacks? But the peace of the living God, it will guard this. The language there, sorry for going full nerd on you, the, the Greek it is depicting a military garrison. So I want you to imagine peace as a, as, as a 300 soldiers, shield to shield, surrounding you saying, I wish would. Come get you some. Because peace has surrounded us. That is the image that Paul is evoking in this Language. It is the peace that Jesus' birth promises. The second observation we make is this. Sorry, I got no clock, so y'all have to bear with me. God bless them, everyone. The second observation we make is that justice and mercy are priorities to Jesus. Okay? And, and, and you may find this interesting. Now, Sears certainly thought this to be so. And you may find this interesting. I Googled this song. Because I wanted to make sure that the version I had in the book that I was reading was the right version. So, you know, when you do true research, you got to do more than one source. You know that. Aren't you proud? And so, so I Googled the song. And in most versions, you cannot find the second verse on Google. Because the second verse deals with something that broader evangelicalism does not want to navigate. And it's the implications of justice and mercy in the gospel. 
So hear these words together. Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world hath suffered long. Beneath the angel's strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love which they bring. This is my favorite part. Oh, hush the noise. I started saying that to my children this week. Hush the noise. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and to hear the angels sing. This may be a revelation for some of you today. And it may be old news, but I'm going to say it anyway. God did not intend for his world to be one of war, injustice, wrong, strife, poverty, and marginalization. Did you know that? That is not what he intended for the world. That's what we created. In fact, I remember having a conversation with one of my friends years ago who was an atheist. He's kind of moved a bit since then. And he said, if God is so good, why does he allow all this pain? And I said, well, riddle me this. Do you want free will or divine authoritarianism? Because God could not allow this, but that would rob you of your will. Because if he gives us our will, then we're going to want our way. And if my way is between you and my way, I will walk through you to get my way. Because that is the nature of the heart of man. And I said, so which one do you want? Do you want a God who winds up robots and tells them which way to go? Or do you want a God who gives free will and grants us the opportunity to love him and love neighbor? Because if he gives us the will to love him and love neighbor, then inevitably most of us are going to choose us over everybody else. It's at the very heart of those sweatshirts, Memphis over everybody. I wish Memphis would love the world and not just themselves. And so here we are with a world that God did not intend. And yet God is clear of what he does desire and what he does desire from us. It's actually captured in a passage that is very familiar to most of us and one of the favorites that Dr. King quoted often in Micah 6, 8. He says, he told you, O mortal, what is good. He told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That is the Christian life captured in one sentence. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Right? If I'm walking humbly with God, it's pretty hard to get the other things wrong. The world is not as God intended it to be. And because of that, God has ever and always stood for those who cannot stand for themselves. Over and over again, we see God step in and stand for those who cannot stand for themselves. He fights for those who cannot fight for themselves. And listen, he calls his people to do the same. That is the call of the gospel. And it is for that reason that Jesus, without relent, listen, he calls the religious leaders of his day and anyone who follows their examples hypocrites. You remember? Second time. Y'all ain't reading your Bible. Do you remember it? He says, you hypocrites, you tithe of dill and mint and cumin. Did you hear that? They, they tithing on tithes, tithes. We barely tithing on bonuses. They were tithing on spices. Well, the bonus for me, ain't it, Lord? I tithe on my regular pay, so the bonus, the bonus is my bonus. Because the tithe is off the first fruits and this is the second fruit, so therefore. <laughs> therefore, vis-a-vis, -vis, with then. Right? 
these men were so holy that they were tithing off their spices. I mean, I, because my imagination is the way that it is, I imagine myself like making some gumbo, right? Coming to a house near you. Imagine myself, she's been asking for months. I'm like, you're not supposed to make gumbo to the first freeze, but my wife breaks my wheel down on a daily basis. So I imagine myself making some gumbo, and I'm like, Tony Sacheries, here's your portion, Lord. Gumbo filet, here's your portion, Lord. A little bit of salt, oh, we're going to double that up because of the ancestors. Here's your portion, <laughs> Lord. Right? They're literally tithing on spices. And what is he saying? But woe to you, hypocrites. Because while, you're, while your faith is so tight that you're tithing on spices, you neglect the weightier things of the law. Mercy and justice. So don't let anybody on a podcast or a television show or some popular evangelical outlet tell you that justice and mercy are not integral to the gospel. Because if your gospel is not rooted in justice and mercy, it is not a gospel. It is a feel-good faith that allows you to be squared with Jesus while other people suffer their lives off. In the third verse of Sears Carol, he surfaces something that we're all too familiar with, especially as we process and navigate the last two years through and post-COVID. And here's what it is, that the world is weary and waiting for God's children to be revealed. Listen to his words, still through the cloven skies they come with peaceful wings unfurled. And still their heavenly music floats over or over all the weary world. Above its sad and lowly plains, they bend on hovering wing and ever over its Babel sounds. This man just called the world Babel. The blessed angels sing. His words reflect Paul's words in the letter to the Roman church. Listen to it from Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. You see, what Paul is writing there is that the world itself is literally heaving. It's, it's heaving under the pressure, heaving under the weight, heaving under the constriction of something that it was never meant to be constrained by. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 8 that he who made it subjected it to futility until the day that the revealing of the sons of God would be complete. There, the world exists under constraints it was never meant to exist. But one day, this is what the word says, the children of God will be revealed and the Son of God will return in glory and power. And knowledge of that coming day, among other things, the scriptures tell us, is in part the source of the angel song. They can sing this song over a weary world because they know it's not always going to be this way. That one day the children of God will be revealed. And the world will be set free from its constraints. One day the world will be released from its weariness. One day the world will more readily reflect as it is the world as it will be. But until that time arrives, what? We don't have to embody the weariness of this world. Did you know that? Did you know you don't have to embody the weariness of this world? If you didn't know, now you know. You don't have to embody that. You don't have to wear that weariness. You don't have to carry that. That is not your burden to carry. Now, Sears tells us, even in his next lyrics, that we can rest in the toil. We can find rest in often slow and painful steps. 
That's how those two verses tie together. Let me summarize it. The world is weary and the angels sing over it. And yet, ye, beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, whose toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. All of us have been subject to the weariness of the world and life's crushing load. We don't have to live there. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, 28 and 30, Jesus says this, come to me, you know it, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. And I will do what? I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. Because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. That's why I can say what I can say. You don't have to be burdened. We're burdened because we choose to be burdened. You don't have to be burdened. You know you can be responsible and unburdened simultaneously. Why? Because I'm only responsible for my part. Jesus got to do the rest or it ain't going to get done. You do not have to bend under the burden of the world. Hey, don't worry about hushing that baby. That baby ain't bothering me. I preach in Pentecostal churches where people roll across the floor right beneath your feet. You just keep going. Y'all get all stiff like, oh, no, the baby's crying. I'm like, man, that baby talking better than y'all. So, <laughs> Listen. Though the world is weary, we can rest in Jesus. That's the promise. Come to me, Jesus says, if you're weary and burdened. Come to me if the load that you're carrying is weighing you down. Come to me if you're, listen, if you're tired of trying to do it on your own, come to me. If, you, if you're finally punch drunk, you know what it means to be punch drunk? I used to box. What it means to be punch drunk is you have thrown and received so many punches that you don't even know what direction you're throwing in anymore. It's like being drunk. You're like, ah, you know, it's like guy at the bar, but with no alcohol. You know what I'm talking about. It's like, who are you swinging at, buddy? There's nobody there. Jesus says when you're tired of being punch drunk, listen, when you're, when you're tired of trying to max out on squatting life, let me, let me step in there and get a couple reps. When you're tired of your back being bent, let me help you stand up straight. Come to me. Listen, to come to Jesus means to open yourself up to him and allow him to love you. Jesus takes the weight. In fact, I'm convinced that the question of our faith is really not how much we love God, but how much do we believe that God loves us? How much do you actually believe it? Because the more that I believe that Jesus loves me, the more I want to be with and like and around Jesus. And that takes care of everything else. He says, come to me. Rest. If you're weary, come to me. Rest in me. Now, you know the word rest here, it implies several things. It implies the total removal of the burdens. Anybody want to be unburdened today? It implies the total removal of the burdens. But watch this. It also implies peace and security. That's what it implies. And it implies a fundamental shift in your well-being. This is the promise of Jesus. 
that the grinding and the toil and the desperate burdens associated with this life, listen, do not have to rob you of life. God, I want abundant life for y'all so bad. And a lot of it begins right here. You can't have abundant life and be in control. And the reason why we're weary is because we want to keep control. But if you want abundant life, open your hands. Open your heart. Be loved by Jesus. Watch everything else around you transform. It's a powerful promise. When Jesus says rest, he takes the weight. Now, in this final stanza, Sears ties his message together by looking forward. Forward to the day when, listen, we will not need Jesus to be our peace. And we will not need to make justice and mercy priorities in our life. And we will not need to find rest in a weary world. Why? Because God's children will be fully and finally revealed. And Jesus will have consummated his promise fully. Listen to his words. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophets seen of old when the ever-circling years shall come the time foretold when the new earth and heaven shall own the prince of peace as their king and the whole world send back the song which now the angels sing you see christmas predicts that god will remake the world when you say, what is Christmas? What is Christmas? Man, presents are great, and time off is great, and trees smell great, and eggnog is great, and those other things that you drink but don't talk about is great. But what if we lived with a pervasive sense that Christmas is actually a prediction that Jesus is going to remake the world as it should be? And we have that in the word, too. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. I've, listen, pick a portion of scripture. This is free, and I love you enough to tell you this. Pick a portion of scripture and memorize it and make it your place. I have two places I always go to. Three, four, three, five. <laughs> Micah 6, 8. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Where John the baptizer, or, or rather, John the apostle, Jesus' little brother says that he sees this great revelation. Let me, let me, can I demystify revelation for y'all real quick? Two things, three things. It is the revelation of Jesus. It is the revelation from Jesus. And it is of things now soon to come. Did you know it said that? So stop looking for nukes and helicopters. There's a whole generation whose whole political position in life is based on Jerry LaHaye books that are loosely based on Bible verses taken out of context. It is these things now soon to come. That should set the context for a revelation for you next time you read it. And Jesus shows John this revelation. And he says that, that he looked up and he saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's why I said make it your place because I know this. This is in my bones. This is what I live for. This is why I get up every day. This is why I stay in this 
ministry. This is why I've continued to toil because I believe that one day I'm going to look up and see a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. I believe that. It's in my soul. And it's not a newness just of replacement. No, no, no. It is a total reorientation of value, of depth, of richness, of power, of beauty. It has been remade. It is metaphysical. It is spiritual. It is translocal. It is everything. A transcendent understanding that whatever this is has been baptized in the resurrection power of the living God. And he says, out of that heaven descended a city, the new Jerusalem. And he said it was beautiful, adorned as a bride would be on her wedding day. John wants you to imagine a city so lovely that, that, that you are a bridegroom standing. I re, I'll never forget it. You're standing at the top of the altar and your future wife comes through the door and you go, whoo, I cried like a baby. It's like, good God, the Lord is my shepherd. He knows what I want. <laughs> he says, that's what he wants you to imagine. Something so beautiful that you don't have words. In the city, at the center of it sits Jesus. And there's no lights. No sun, no moon, because the brightness of the, you remember what we just said? The radiance of the glory of the angels made the shepherds scared. Imagine the light coming off of Jesus. We don't need a sun and a moon. We have the radiance of the glory of the living God lighting the whole city. And after he's done seeing, he said, and then I heard some things. I heard a voice coming out from the throne that was sitting at the center of the city and the voice said, behold. Did you put reverb on that? Move us up. Behold. There will be no I live with pain every day. So I open up this verse and I say, one day, Lord, one day my fingers and my knees aren't going to hurt anymore. My heart is not going to hurt anymore from many heartbreaks over 20 years of ministry. No pain. No, I'm not going to hurt anymore from losing my little brother. No pain anymore. No death anymore. No sorrow anymore. For the former things have passed away. And behold, I make all things, listen, new. But my favorite part, he says, I will be with them. The Greek word there is tabernacle. I'm going to pull up and be their neighbor. I'm going to be with them as their God, and they will be my people. 
I love the way the Jesus Storybook Bible says it. God will make everything sad come untrue. <laughs> now, why does this matter to us? Because what we gather from this powerful song is both the hope we have in Jesus, despite the fractured nature of the world and the call that we have to work for the world as it is, to be more readily reflective of the world as it will be. And so what do we do with that? Listen, what do we do with that? We, we commit ourselves to the works of Jesus as followers of the way of Jesus. Specifically, we live from rest and not forward. We make lives, make the lives of the least of these our priority. We reveal to those far from God the promises of the future to come. We return the angel song to them both vocally and in our actions. And so today I invite you to take one next step. Listen, discover how you are meant to make a difference in the world and then do it. Do it. Growth track anyone? Today. Today, 115, I'll see you there. Because we can't follow the way of Jesus until we work the works of Jesus, and we can't work the works of Jesus until we know the works that he has set aside for us. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, by the way. That's your next step. Change the world the way Jesus meant for you to do it. Let's get about the works of Jesus as follows of the way of Jesus until the world Jesus loves reflects the world he's recreating. Amen. Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus that we would experience your glory, your power, your mercy, your goodness, and that we would be inspired, inspired to work the works of Jesus. As we follow the way of Jesus. And for those of us who are far from Jesus, I pray now that this would be your moment to receive Jesus as Savior and King so that your world might be fundamentally transformed forever. In Jesus' name, amen.